0: Welcome everyone. Uh, today, uh, another episode of uh, Kodira's Talks. We are recording on the 20th of November, and we have with us today.
1: Oh, uh, my name is Chris, I'm a principal uh, craftsman
2: here at
0: Kodira's. And another guest today.
2: And my name is Bob, I'm the chief architect at Kazoo.
0: And today, we have brought um, Bob to talk uh, with us about serverless. Which, I must say, now just uh, to disclose in advance, I'm working with him at uh, Agassou. I'm quite impressed with the way it has been set up. So, um, Bob, could you tell our listeners who you are, what have you done? Right, yeah, I
2: guess. Um, so, I'm Bob, still. Um, yep. I've been a software architect for about a decade, um, working at uh, MADE. And then, before that, I worked at Hudl. Uh, building kind of distributed event-driven architectures um, on a whole bunch of platforms, so .NET and then you know, Linux, Python, and now Kazoo We're doing TypeScript.
0: Okay, you have uh, quickly talk about uh, event-driven design. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? What do you understand by that?
2: So, um, for me, event-driven architectures are Architectures where the primary way that systems communicate between one another is through asynchronous message passing. Um, And specifically, we use uh, events. So an event is a fact about a thing that has happened in the past that the business care about. So uh, we're building out service-oriented architectures, but we're not doing kind of point-to-point API calls where we can avoid it. Mm. Instead, one system will receive a message, it does some work, it raises an event to say it's performed some work, and then another system picks that up and so on. So the whole thing is sort of choreographed in a weird and slightly uh, clunky dance.
0: (laughs) And what what do you think, Ali, what do you see as the advantages? Why are you using this kind of architecture?
2: Yeah, so the advantages I think are there's a very low degree of coupling between the systems involved because really they're only coupled to the published language between them so they are expressing what they're doing in the language of the domain then other systems are reliant on that published definition that's really the only interaction between them right so it's very easy for things to evolve separately and if you use like you know tolerant reader or whatever it's very easy to keep evolving those messages over time. Um, I think the disadvantages are it's conceptually uh, more complex for people at first Mm -hmm. because they have this kind most developers I've worked with have this kind of expectation that service-oriented architecture is about APIs and things calling one another. Um, that has a whole bunch of operational issues that you can avoid.
0: Okay, so we'll be looking a bit later and a bit more into uh, issues that you have encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to uh, quickly talk uh, before we move into what you are doing right now, what's been done at the moment, at Akazu. Uh, see, if We can talk a bit, as much as you can, uh, about the work that you have done before. So you said that you have been working like a, already around 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you start with it? How, how come that you started doing distributed training?
2: Sure. So um, I started at Huddle. I think I was the first developer in the London office. So at that point it was a very early stage startup. Um, and for a while Huddle was sort of the uh, Darling of the London tech scene, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we were building very fast, and we had this prototype that we were building on top of um, that. The founders had managed to, you know, scrounge some money to build, um, and this prototype was a .NET uh, web forms application. Mm. And we'd got a lot of ideas as a dev team about, you know, software craftsmanship and about how we wanted to do things, but we were all quite uh, inexperienced and we didn't really have the maturity to do the things we wanted to do. So we kept on building on top of this prototype and it got bigger and bigger and more complicated. And at some point it became obvious that we'd written a complete nightmare and we needed outside help. Um, So at that point we started hiring for an architect uh, and we hired a guy called Ian Cooper uh, who ran the .NET uh, user group. Um, And he's a well-known guy in the kind of TDD circuit and all that stuff. Um, and I worked with Ian for about five years, I think, um, as we kind of slowly broke up this monolith. Uh, and he'd come from an insurance house where he'd already been building these kinds of high throughput, um, event-driven, asynchronous systems. Mm. Um, so was sort of, I was sort of lucky to work with him in breaking apart the monster that I'd created. <laughs> um, and then we went. I went to Made, um, basically because I went with the CTO. Um, So I went to Made, and they had a similar problem, right? They'd they'd actually got a duolith, so they'd got a front-end monolith and a back-end monolith, Mm. and the two teams didn't talk to one another, and it was just a complete nightmare. Um, And so they had the same problem, right? They'd reached scaling limits, things weren't working. Um, So I helped them to kind of do that same service decomposition Mm. um, with slightly different technologies, but the same fundamental goal.
0: Do you find it difficult at the beginning to move from uh, from this? Original prototype that you had, this uh, monster monolith, uh, into the into what uh, Ian was uh, preaching.
2: Yeah, it was so. I think, I think the first thing is it took me a while to understand what the hell he was talking about. Um, so it took me a while to understand what he meant when he said it, you know service layer or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Um, once we sort of had the basic concepts, the the key um, practice for splitting apart the monolith was copy-paste. So we literally copied the entire code base over to a new repository, cut out 90% of it so we were just left with one domain model-ish. Yeah. Obviously it was a mess but we had one domain model yeah. and then we just hacked away it until it was something we could ship. And then we did the same again for another domain model and so on. Um, I think people underestimate how useful like copy-paste and fork is as an architectural <laughs> practice. <laughs> um, so yeah I think the 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 first hurdles were conceptual, but then once you got the conceptual hurdles down, it's like the mechanics of it fairly straightforward.
1: How did you decide which domains to tackle? Um, Did you pick stuff that sort of sat on the outside, was fairly independent to start with, or did you go jump straight into the core of
2: it? So Ian went straight into the core. Um, So I think the first thing to note is that at Huddle, I'd already tried to do this. I was sort of an architect before Ian got there, but it wasn't a very good one because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, so I tried to do this already with a kind of new greenfields project, which was mm. like task management or something. And that was clearly a separate bounded context by itself. So we wrote that alone, but we made a bunch of mistakes with it. Um, the core domain for Huddle, which was an online collaboration platform, was document management, so sharing documents, managing versions, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we sort of jumped straight in at the deep end. We cut out the files domain the model and split that off into its own set of services, um, put it all behind an API and went from there. Um, and we sort of used um, the fact that we wanted to do a refresh of the UI as the reason to do that. Um, he used to describe this as architectural tax, which is a term I've sort of kept with me. So when you want to do a big piece of work in a particular area that's often a very good time to talk to your stakeholder and say yes but first we need to do it's massive remodeling work, and so uh, uh, how do we jump straight into the center? Um, at made, we had a slightly separate problem, which was um, we'd got these two systems, so Magento and OpenERP, and they were synchronizing stock with like a cron job basically an XML RPC, mm. and it reached the point where the cron job to synchronize a day's orders was taking more than 24 hours to run. Oh, yeah. At which point, like, it's game over, right? there's nothing you can do except just turn everything off and panic. Um, so the first thing we wanted to do was take the heaviest part of that, which was the bit that synced stock levels, because obviously they're quite rapidly changing. And So all we did was we wrote a brand new service, fresh, that could answer the question, how much stuff is in stock right now? Mm-hmm. And then once we got that system, that teeny tiny microservice, then we were able to turn off that part of the synchronization. So in that case, we just look, instead of doing copy-paste of code, we were just lifting a single small piece of functionality out to a separate system and then putting it behind an API.
0: Quick question. Uh, in test, you have way more experience now than you had when you did originally at Huddle and when you did it at May. Will you have a, will now approach both differently to what you did at the, that point in time and the way that you were the, the, the you did it, do you still go uh, for the core like Ian did for example on At Huddle, or or do, you th- or do you think you will approach now in a different way?
2: That is a good question. Um, would I do files again? So I think <coughs> it's sort of difficult for me to answer because hacking out the files, the main model, took six months and the first oh. couple of weeks was a lot of fun. And <laughs> then after that it was such a grindingly miserable job that at some point they had to stop me doing it and get me to go and do machine learning for a bit because I was, just, I was at the end of my tether. Um, it was a long, long slog. Whereas availability, um, the system we wrote at MADE was, I mean, that project was done and dusted in you know, like two months flat. That included, you know it was our first application in, on AWS Cloud we needed to figure out how to use AWS and Ansible and all the logging and monitoring. built a whole lot in a couple of months because it was Greenfield. Um, so I think the nice thing about what we did at Huddle was it really did break the back of it because that was like the core domain and mm. we'd managed to pull it out um, whereas otherwise I think you would have been dancing around that problem for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but it was a significant engineering undertaking, it was, it was a big, big job. Thankfully, the business were bought into it because we had uh, scaling problems that were obvious, and hmm. so they knew we had to fix this issue.
0: Okay, that's actually that's pretty good to have business buying <laughs> whenever you're gonna do.
1: It, it's the best. Yeah, <laughs> it's very difficult to do this without business backing. Yeah, <laughs> it's difficult to do a six-month product books, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> It's just like the old one, but better. Yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah.
2: <laughs> For the reasons you don't care about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's gonna kind of go straight to, uh, to the meat of, of what we want to talk today. Um, and it's about the approach that uh, it has been taking at uh, Akasu. Mm-hmm. How come, first, how come that you have gone, oh, I uh, rather explain to the people. Which way have
2: you gone? And then we can uh, okay, talk about yeah. why. Uh, so, Kazoo is um, fully serverless. Uh, we run TypeScript on AWS Lambda. Um, we still use Event Driven Architecture. Uh, we're using CloudWatch Events, so they've, they've renamed it EventBridge now. Um, so, we're using EventBridge uh, for communication between systems. Um, and yeah, everything is TypeScript runs on Lambdas.
0: OK, so do you have uh, any? Uh, infra to maintain at the moment and infrastructure that you have to maintain?
2: Infra, so I think you always have some level of infrastructure right but the infrastructure mm-hmm. that we maintain at Kazoo is mostly um, things like IAM roles, um, there are, uh, there's our logging stack, there's our monitoring stack those things you're always going to need for the most part we try to outsource those so the logging we've outsourced that to Elastic, the observability we're looking at Honeycomb um, we're willing to spend more money not yeah. to host it ourselves, so GitLab for example is our source control and CI system, and while I don't love it, it does mean that we don't have to run Jenkins on a bunch of boxes and yeah. worry about it falling over, which was a big problem that made, right? So there was yeah. a premium in terms of cost, but I mean that made, just running the ELK stack in you know, test prod and dev plus Jenkins must have taken a full-time Mops engineer, um, and I don't have any of that overhead. So it is more expensive in terms of cash outlay per month, but yeah. it's much, much less in terms of cognitive load and in terms of operational overhead.
0: Was that the specific reason that you wanted to go, or the casu decided to go that way just to avoid that uh, cognitive cost, or there were uh, any other additional reasons on top of that? Or? I
2: think there are two reasons. Right. So the first reason is exactly that mm-hmm. um, that At- made I, so I made with my first time flying solo as an architect, right? Mm-hmm. So I made some niche choices um, <laughs> and some of those we ended up sort of later backtracking on, right? So we simplified our monitoring stack, we outsourced, mm-hmm. like, because uh, we wanted to avoid that from, from the outset because it was... The problem with a lot of the platform stuff that you give to devs is that... There's not a lot of love for it, except when it breaks, and all of a sudden everyone is angry with you, and it's just a miserable experience. I just want, wanted to avoid that whole thing. Um, the other reason is that I think when you have the opportunity to build something new, you get to make big bets on what you think the future yeah. is, and I think the big bet for the next three to five years is serverless, um, and so we went serverless. Do
0: you have a? a at the moment, you are using. AWS uh, to to host your serverless uh, system. Uh, it, it was just because you had experience with it before. Uh, it was until uh, you made a comparison between the different providers and decided AWS was the best for the for the system.
2: So I had obviously extensive AWS experience already. Um, mostly, I think we went with the AWS because it's the safe default, mm-hmm. and I think it's the most mature in terms of function of a service and the kind of surrounding things you know, like Dynamo and IAM and AWS are really great, like the UI is clunky, right? but mm. the, the um, platform itself is very, is very strong and very mature. Um, and I think if you are adopting something as kind of newfangled and risky as serverless, then it behooves you to choose the most mature and boring provider of it because <laughs> otherwise you've just, you just got too, too much risk, right?
0: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Which, uh, okay, so we are using uh, AWS, we are using use uh, AWS Lambdas. Uh, any other service that you consider important for this whole setup of serverless? Is there any other service from AWS apart from the Lambdas itself?
2: Yeah, okay. Um, other important services? So, as we use you know, Dynamo heavily for oh. data storage. S3, all of that stuff. EventBridge I think is a big one. I think most people haven't really played with that. Um, I think until recently people had deeply underestimated the power of CloudWatch events Mm -hmm. because basically in every single AWS account you've got this highly available, very scalable message broker that is completely pub-sub, no wiring required. It's a really nice bit of kit. Uh, So EventBridge is a big one. Um, we were using things like CloudFront, we're kind of dropping that and moving to CloudFlare because it's, right, well, it's got some nicer operational qualities. So, CloudFront doesn't have a particularly mature caching story, for example, mm-hmm. where CloudFlare has a really great caching story. Uh, we played a bit with Lambda at Edge for doing kind of authentication or loading stuff from S3 buckets, and it turns out Lambda at Edge sucks. Um, <laughs> so, we stopped doing that, but CloudFlare workers are really good. Okay. Um, so, I think we'll end up with Cloudflare being our kind of one stop shop for kind of routing and caching and what we're calling progressive enhancement, so kind of feature flagging and that kind of stuff. Um, and then all the application logic will live downstream on an API gateway.
0: You have been uh, installing the virtues of Eventbridge. I have. Um, how, how is that to say you are using it uh, at Tassu?
2: So. Um, how do we use EventBridge at Kazoo? So, in what, in what sense?
0: Well, this, you are uh, talking that is part of, uh, important part of how the key that you should yeah.
2: Well, okay. the other
1: thing, is, I guess, is kind of the default choice if you're looking for that kind of thing on uh, AWS would be SNS and SQS. Yeah. So, why not go down that route?
2: Yeah, the real reason, I think, is that um, both SNS and SQS require some kind of point-to-point uh, configuration, right? Okay. Um, and that's what I wanted to avoid. So, the nice thing about EventBridge is you literally just say, I want to receive all events of type, I don't know, whatever it might be, vehicle purchased. Yeah. And it will go, here you go, here they are. And there's no, you don't have to worry about any ARNs, there's no infrastructure to set up. It's literally just, you raise events and you subscribe to events, and the entire infrastructure is taken care of for you under the covers, which is a really, really nice story. Um, so we do use SQS um, within a system. Um, so within one service, um, people are free to use whatever mechanisms they want. You can use like an S3 bucket or a Dynamo stream or SQS, whatever makes the most operational sense. But what we're saying is that those communications between systems, that's where we're saying you use the CloudWatch events and you use that published language for communication.
0: Okay, uh, so are there uh, specific warranties? For example, uh, SQS, uh, you have warranties in terms of uh, making sure that the message is delivered before it gets deleted or anything like that. uh. Mm -hmm. Or you can uh, have multiple subscriptions and make sure that it goes to uh, all of them. Does uh, EventBridge give those guarantees?
2: So from my, off the top of my head, so don't quote me on this, but I think that EventBridge's um, reliability guarantees are fundamentally the same as SNS. I suspect that under the hood it is in fact SNS, um, just with a bunch of quality of life stuff on top. Um, So if your Lambda is unable to handle a request, AWS will come back and try again later with sort of an exponential Mm back-off, you can set up DLQs, all of that stuff. Um, So yeah, the reliability guarantees are it will keep trying to deliver, at some point it will give up, then it can go to a DLQ. So you talked about having this published domain language
1: that the Mm -hmm. services um, use to talk to to each other, basically. (coughs) How do you publish that? How do you manage that?
2: I actually have a really simple approach which we uh, first did at Huddle. So we use uh, documentation driven design at Huddle for APIs and later for events. So I've literally got a git repo called events and before you author or modify an event you open a pull request and then you need to get buy-in from the people who are going to consume your event that it all makes sense, they're happy with your schema. And then we have some tooling that uh, makes sure that documentation has got examples in it, and examples match the schema and all the rest of it. Uh, at some point we want to add some more tooling that will watch all of our events in flight, at least in test, maybe in production, and actually test those against the published schema. Because we've had some problems where teams aren't yet mature enough that I can be 100% sure the schemas are true, Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I mean, this worked really well at MADE, worked very well at Huddle. Once you get into that um, culture of, you don't change an event until you've opened the PR, and then that published schema in that repository is your acceptance criteria. That's what you test against. It's very easy to have something that's quite reliable.
1: So you, you didn't think of using like um, contract-driven testing something like PACT, because I know that yeah. supports like um, a sort of a message-based model now.
2: Yeah, so it does now. It didn't when I looked a while back. Yeah, am um, the I think the, I'm interested in PACT, particularly around HTTP APIs. I'm not sure how well the model Um, kind of applies to uh, EventBridge. What I've seen it looks um, quite kind of topic based which I don't think is a kind of good conceptual match and honestly a documentation driven design approach is really really simple and works very well.
0: Okay. Do you have any tooling so if people open a pull request on this Separate Git get repo. Mm-hmm. Do they have any tooling at, at the moment to pick up the information or be updated when the, when the repo is changed? Because one of the things that we have is that maybe uh, someone, I don't know if it happens, but someone pulls a pull request, someone else approves, but somehow a team that was affected by it didn't know about it. Yeah. Does it happen?
2: Yeah, okay. Um, So the tooling we've got on there right now, so the um, documentation we publish is like a markdown file. Mm -hmm. It's a markdown file that follows some conventions. So we expect to see a code block, and the first code block in there is going to be the schema, and any subsequent code blocks are examples. Mm -hmm. Um, And we expect to have a YAML metadata section at the top that says what the event is called, which system is raising it, and then what the consumers are. So it would be fairly straightforward if you fancy opening a pull request um, to when we accept uh, something into master, we can notify those teams that mm-hmm. an event they subscribe to has been changed, um, but I think some of the more interesting stuff that we want to do is when we start to run those kind of continuous tests in production where we can see if an event is not quite right, yeah. and if it doesn't meet the, s- the public schema then we can you know, immediately notify them and say your system is broken.
0: What else do you have uh, on your system around tooling? So what, what other tools are you using to support your current uh, architecture?
2: Um, so we're big users of the serverless framework, um, which is sort of okay. Uh, <laughs> the thing I like about serverless framework is you've got a lot of plugins, the thing I dislike about serverless framework is you have a lot of plugins. Yes. Uh, the, I think the SAM is interesting, so the serverless application framework, the uh, AWS one, mm. that's very austere. It doesn't give you. There's, there's not much in the way of quality of life. It's yeah. You do it this way, and that's it. Um, I've seen people who are using Terraform and just Terraform to do uh, Lambda deployments. Okay. But um, Serverless comes with a lot of additional usability yeah. that would be hard to live without. Um, other than that, we use Terraform, so we just use the Serverless framework to deploy the Lambdas themselves, mm-hmm. plus like the IAM roles, and that's more or less it. The DLQs. Everything else we deploy through Terraform, so the API gateways, if we need any shared IAM roles, all of that stuff is managed through Terraform because so it's just much simpler.
0: I looked some, some time back about uh, using Terraform to deploy uh, f- uh, code mm-hmm. and it was just an absolute pain. I, yeah, like I can't <laughs>
2: imagine why people do it to themselves, but I'm told there are people who are deploying Lambdas with Terraform and they're having, they're having a lovely time, so it's, it's doable, right?
0: Yes, well, it well, Lots <laughs> of things are doable. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. It depends on how much pain do you want to suffer. Well, <laughs> if it's <laughs> someone else suffering
1: it, <laughs> it's an easier decision to make. It's it's true. <laughs>
0: true. Um, well, so one of the things that uh, it uh, impressed me because I haven't seen it before, used uh, was uh, to use you know, serverless framework, and it was just the easiness in which, you just. Deploy the land and all the associated yeah. uh, infra that it needs to go with it, as DLQs and, and BPCs and whatnot. It just set up. How come do you? Uh, were you aware of uh, several things before you decided to go this route, uh, Akasu, or because it was already there? Is it's uh, okay? it's another benefit of going uh, yeah
2: Yeah. Um, so. I didn't know about Serverless Framework before we decided to do serverless at Kazoo. So I think going serverless was decision number one, yeah. going TypeScript was decision number two, and then after that came the specific technologies involved. Um, I think you're right, the thing that is most surprising about serverless is the low level of cognitive load when you want to deploy some infrastructure. So I recently deployed something. Um, is a tool that helps developers to do end-to-end tests because what it does is it subscribes to all of our events and it makes them available through a WebSocket. And you can subscribe to a particular event type. So in your end-to-end test, you can call an API and then just wait for this asynchronous thing to happen later, right? And this piece of kit has got like an API gateway and two or three different endpoints and a Dynamo database and some IAM roles. And it's not huge, but there's like quite a few moving parts. I wrote it on the train because I write code on my commute I got into the office and I could get to my terminal to do serverless deploy and it comes up. If I had to configure kit for that, if I actually had to deploy like EC2 instances in an auto scaling group, set up a load balancer, set up an RDS database, convince ops to, to put my secret somewhere, all of that stuff, it would never have happened because the... While that piece of kit is very useful, yeah. it would have been really difficult to make the argument we should put that much effort into delivering something that was purely there for developer convenience. Mm-hmm. So I think the developer experience piece is, is a massive part of the reason we ended up going serverless.
1: Oh, I've got another question. You said serverless was decision number two. I know it's not the topic of the podcast, mm-hmm. but so serverless was decision number one, TypeScript was decision number two. Yeah. Why TypeScript and what else was in the mix?
2: Um, So at Maid, I was a Pythonista. Um, So I love Python, write a book on Python. Um, But JavaScript is the default language for Lambda. That's just how it is. Um, Node um, has got nice startup qualities. There's an excellent ecosystem. some years ago Coding Horror said that you know, everything that can be written in JavaScript will, will be eventually be written in JavaScript, right? And he's completely correct. So I think JavaScript was a sensible bet. It's also nice that you can then have you know, back end engineers who can help work on like the React front end and vice versa. So getting to the point where we had one language to rule them all was a very nice thing to do, and if you're going to do it, JavaScript is a safe bet. TypeScript, I think, is, I think the thing about TypeScript is that it's the first successful attempt to kind of add more rigour to JavaScript. So there have been others been like Dart, and there's Flow, was and CoffeeScript, provided? CoffeeScript, well, I quite liked CoffeeScript, CoffeeScript was cute, <laughs> right? Um, but they all sort of fizzled out. I think TypeScript is the first one that has enough community um, momentum that it's difficult for me to see it dying out as a separate language. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it's got huge backing from your know, Microsoft and Facebook. Yeah. So I think the TypeScript is here to stay, and it's nice to have the types. It's nice to have the optional nullability, coalescence operators, all that good stuff. Is, yeah, it's good.
0: We have been talking about this this, this idea uh, having the serverless and deploy the the lambdas from uh, using serverless framework and the infra that goes with the lambda is. Therefore, we are talking about the teams are doing their own infrastructure. So um,
2: that depends on what you mean by infrastructure. So for a, p- for a given service, so I'm defining service here as a group, an autonomous group of interdependent components that collectively support a business capability. Right? So that's <laughs> going to be a bunch of functions, a database, maybe an S3 bucket, and those things all talking to each other a team owns those and we try not to share those things between teams because obviously it's a coupling issue and you get deployment stacks, all that crap. Um, But then below that there is additional infrastructure, right? So we've got some stuff set up for doing like single sign-on with SAML, uh, some core IAM roles for deployment. We own the CloudWatch log stack, all of that stuff. So it sort of depends on what you mean by infrastructure. Teams do own everything that belongs inside their stack Then there's like a few little bits and bobs that the platform team ship to them so that they can Hmm. move faster without needing to care about metrics or logs.
0: So how many people do you have at the moment working with you?
2: It's crazy man. So I think six (laughs) months ago there was nobody and we're now up to 65 engineers or something. Um, It is wild fast. Um, So I think that we have a tech team of around 65 right now has it been a challenge
1: keeping your like architectural shape at that rate of growth?
2: It has been a challenge keeping my architectural shape and in fact <laughs> I'm delivering a talk on that very subject on the 27th oh, Goldman Sachs. <laughs> um, so yeah um, it has been. I think it's been less of a challenge than I expected it to be. And I think the things that have helped me are clear architectural principles, so what is a service and how do services communicate between them and no exceptions um, and that Serverless has helped because developers don't have to think too much about infrastructure. So overall, given how quickly we've gone, things are mostly okay. Where it's gone wonky is where team boundaries aren't right. So actually I spend most of my time not hand-holding on technical issues, but trying to help rethink what those team topologies look like. So, you know, what are the boundaries of ownership and what are the boundaries of particular boundary context and so who owns which component and what are the interaction styles. That's going to be the big job after launch, which is you know, hopefully the next week or so, um, we'll be reorganising the whole team and making sure that teams are owning the right set of stuff to reduce those communication paths between
0: people. Makes sense. Uh, do you uh, organise workshops around that idea? Or have you organised workshops uh, around the idea of uh, getting those uh, all domains really? Mm. Uh, Organized, uh, distributed, or when yeah. people have to move things from one thing to another?
2: Yeah, so we did a workshop exercise last week, the week before. Kazoo time's weird, so I have no idea when it was. <laughs> um, we did, um, it was based on some work that Nick Jeans got on running context mapping workshops. But mm. the first thing we did was uh, big picture event storming. Uh, so we understood you know, what are all the kind of high level events that happen. And then we tried to group those into uh, chunks. So, you know, we buy th- cars, because it are a used car company, by the way, that's what we do, we sell used cars. So <laughs> we, um, we should
1: probably do a bit and edit that at the front. Because yeah, that, yeah, will, yeah, yeah, that would put this in context. Yeah, yeah. That will put
2: this bit in context nicely. So we, um, we split those events into kind of five big chunks, right? We buy yeah. the cars, we make the cars look pretty, we sell the cars, we deliver the cars, and we look after the customer, right? And those are our mm. kind of candidate maps. And so we put all the events into those. Then what we did was we um, got developers to list all of the components that they own. So all of the functions, all of the services, map them all out on a whiteboard mm. with all of the external dependencies as well. And we drew the communication path between them. So where are the synchronous things? Where do things depend on one another? We drew that out on the whiteboard. And then we tried to put boundaries in that would minimize the communication between things. And if there were things that looked clearly like they are in the wrong cluster, then we moved them. What we ended yeah. up with is basically a context map so we had more context than I expected which is good I suppose um, but I think that was really useful and we tried to put the labels that we'd come up with in the first place that we'd done for the event storming onto those contexts and we realized some of those were wrong and some of those aren't context at all and uh, so yeah the end result was we drew out a bunch of contexts and which components belong to each system.
0: So in, the, in terms of the uh, of architecture, we have been talking about uh, how, why, uh, some of the tooling that uh, it is uh, being used. We have talked as well about uh, uh, domains uh, and context, of which is applied to different teams. Is there any other uh, practice being done at the moment at uh, Kazoo uh, that is important for? delivery of the of the system?
2: Um, what other practices are important so also uh, we work quite closely with codurance um, I think myself and the engineering manager and the CTO all have sort of XP backgrounds mm-hmm. and we're big believers in XP and all of that you know jazz um, so yeah there's lots of TDD I think TDD and DDD are um, they're force multipliers, right? Like, they, yeah. they feed off one another. So yeah. learning how to write your tests in that business language rather than focusing on you know, technical concerns helps to drive the design of your domain which gives you better tests and so on and so forth. So they feed off one another very nicely. Um, so know, yeah, TDD pairing are important. Um, I think the things that we still have left to do are a proper story around continuous deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, again, serverless helps. So at MADE, I spent four years putting in place a a proper continuous deployment pipeline using Nomad as a container scheduler, and we used GitHub flow, and it was great, but it took a long time to get there. Whereas with serverless, if you don't care too much about URIs, you can do that kind of continuous deployment with ephemeral environments in an afternoon. Mm. Um, So it's it's crazy. Um, So yeah, continuous deployment is still on the list, other than that about the XP practices and DDD.
0: Is there anything that has gone wrong, or do you consider that probably, on hindsight, you'll change from the beginning? You call.
2: Yeah, there are two things, um, mm. at least two things. The two things that come immediately to mind right, is almost certainly more than two. So the first thing is um, the team, d- the team setup. So yeah. the way that was originally decided was we had a um, like a user journey map mm. upon the wall. And said, you know, like literally, like, we buy the cars, we get the cars ready, we sell them on the website, blah, 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 blah. blah. And one of the um, agile delivery leads divided that map into five sections Yeah. and literally just said, it's team one, team two, team three, team four, and so on. Right. The problem is that one of those sections is what's called post-sales, which is everything that happens after we sold the car to you on the website. Mm. The problem is that's like 60% of the business at least. And you end up owning a whole bunch of stuff around sort of order fulfillment and customer service and last mile logistics and all this kind of unrelated stuff. So teasing that apart and making those boundaries proper again is one of the things. So I wish we'd done a better job of that in the first place. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on, right? Uh, the other one is we have a shared dev accounts. So we've got uh, dev test and prod or AWS accounts. I think the shared dev account was a monumental mistake. I loathe the shared dev account. <laughs> I think either developers should have their own accounts or we shouldn't have a dev account at all. Mm. Um, and one of the challenges we'll have next year is I think each team is going to end up, at least each team will end up with their own test and production account and I think we'll do the routing for that in Cloudflare because it reduces your blast radius yeah. and it means you can be more cavalier about giving people permissions. So people come and say, oh I want to be able to edit secrets in you know, SSM. And the problem is I don't want them to be able to edit all of the secrets but for various reasons the IAM is complicated. Mm-hmm. So if each team had their own account it would be much easier to say devs can just go hog wild and if they break it it's only their service they're going to break.
0: So on, on this case because the communication is gone, done through Web and breach then that's not an issue I suppose? It's not an issue at all,
2: it would just magically work. Um, so you don't have to care about VPCs or any of that stuff, you can literally just say I want to subscribe to all the events from this account and pull them all across with a filter and away
0: you go. Wow.
2: It's great, it's amazing. <laughs>
0: um, um, okay, so so we have that, we have as well, you were talking earlier on about this event format uh, uh, event repo. So, and if we, if a contract... Uh, Uh, contract driving design is uh, implemented uh, testing then that means that integration is not much important between the different services because it's just that specific yeah
2: so i have very strong feelings on end-to-end testing and appropriate test boundaries yeah Um, i like to test at the contract level so whatever is within one of those services the group of interdependent components. Mm. Um, that's the boundary which you want to test, right? You want to put yeah. something in, see what comes out, and try to avoid testing across services because it just gets really fragile and it gets very difficult to maintain and there's issues of ownership and it's just horrible. So yeah, for the most part, I like to test by driving one service and mm-hmm. seeing what
0: comes out the back of it. Your experience with that so far has been good then? Yes, we're pretty well
2: elsewhere. I think uh, um, part of the problem is that Kazoo um, it was growing very fast. Yeah. So at Made, when we did the availability service, I was able to work for you know three months with three other developers, and we implemented proper TDD, and I taught them how to do hexagonal architecture, and really continuous deployment, and all that good stuff. At Kazoo, in that time, we've built out seven squads and we've shipped like an entire e-commerce proposition where you can buy cars online, right? Mm-hmm. So it's impossible for me to spend that much time with any one team. Um, so there's still a lot of stuff we need to tighten up around what are the different types of testing we do and what's appropriate where, um, but unfortunately we've got a really great quality coach who is all over that stuff, so I can kind of take a step back from that.
0: We have talked about uh, the main issues uh, that you have found so, uh, found so far, and you have actually plans to to fix it. Oh, some of them have been already been started to be fixed. The teams, other ones, accounts will be fixed uh, later on. Is there anything else that you think needs to improve? I, I believe you earlier on you mentioned that you want to put uh, you are looking at Honeycomb. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at uh, talk about maybe all the possible improvements if, if there are any. Uh, Just quickly, why why Honeycomb?
2: Uh, So Honeycomb, for those who've not played with it, is an observability tool. Um, It has a custom columnar database in the background. So you spit high cardinality uh, field JSON at it, and it can slice and dice it in real time. So you can go to it and you can aggregate and sort by whatever fields you like and use it for doing distributed tracing and error reporting and latency monitoring, that kind of thing. So we have a very strong structured log story already uh, with Elastic. I think the thing that Honeycomb adds on top of that is you don't have to know up front how you're going to index your data. Yeah. And it's very good at doing things like identifying correlators. So you get a pager duty or Ops Genie, whatever it is, beep at three a.m. You go to Honeycomb, you can see the latency has gone up over the last half hour, but it will tell you what correlates with that additional latency. So is it a particular subset of users? Is it a particular kind of query they're making? Is it a particular set of URLs? You can immediately see, they call it bubble up, you can immediately see which things correlate with a particular uh, subpopulation of requests, which is great. And then you can't do that very nicely in Kibana.
0: So you do do this kind of dynamically as You are investigating?
2: Yeah. So you can literally you can literally like draw out a heat map of latency Mm -hmm. or of error counts, whatever it is, select a region on the heat map and say bubble up and it will tell you what correlates with that subpopulation. Which is crazy useful. Because it (laughs) means like literally in ten seconds flat you go, oh I see, it's like this group of users (coughs) calling this particular endpoint, that's where Mm -hmm. the latency is.
0: Any other improvements that you think you should have? Man,
2: there's so many, so many things (laughs) I want to do, right? So I think the goal um, obviously, I spend a lot of time with you, Hogge, because you're mm-hmm. wonderful, on the platform team. And the goal for the platform team is to build a high-performance technology organization who don't mm-hmm. have like a specific ops role. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff we want to do there around uh, automated governance. So looking at like AWS Config and AWS Guard Dog. Um, we want to use Control Tower probably for like multiple AWS account setups. Um, in terms of architecture, most of it is going to be. Um, either fixing those boundaries or replacing components that we bought commercial off the shelf with something in-house, that's going to be slow and painful. And then looking ahead, the business has extraordinarily aggressive growth plans over the next three to five years and we're going to need to build a lot of custom software for managing the logistics of this thing in order for that to work. So again, a lot like MADE, people see the website but that's, you know, like that's the tip of the iceberg. right? Mm-hmm. The interesting stuff is in how do you move supplies from you know, the Far East through to the UK and how do you get things delivered to people's doors and what happens when it breaks and all of that stuff. That's where the meat is going to be for Kazoo and that's going to be a five-year job easy.
0: Okay, that's uh, interesting. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about? Uh, only that I'm hiring. <laughs> obviously <laughs> like d- extraordinary
2: pace so if you're interested you can drop me a CV
0: okay uh, we can yeah. probably put
1: uh, like a link in the yeah Don't go over YouTube on you put a link in the description
2: yeah
0: yeah we can do that can do that um, okay uh, in that case I think we're done we're done are we happy?
2: Oh, I'm happy yeah very happy.
0: happy yeah Good. Happy. thank you everyone oh, cool thank you thanks yeah. And thank you to our listeners and we'll see you next time.